Well, if you were here last night, we looked at Psalm 17 and saw that uh, David's way up out of his troubles, at least the troubles in his heart, the troubles in his mind, the, the discouragement and depression he was feeling, the way out was to look into eternity and to set his hope on heaven, to fix his eyes on Christ, and to look forward to that day when he would see God and he would be made like him. That is the answer, the eternal answer for our troubles. There are also benefits to our troubles in the here and now, and that's the theme of the passage I want to look at with you this morning. James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 2 through 4. It's a familiar text. Now, the epistle of James, by the way, is an extraordinary one. This is the earliest of all the epistles that were written in the New Testament. In fact, this was probably the first of all the canonical books to be written. Very likely, this epistle was written within 15 years after Pentecost. In other words, the, the text we're going to be looking at this morning may very well be the first inspired words ever written down in the New Testament. And the background of this epistle is also intriguing. The James who wrote this epistle is not the James who was one of the original 12 apostles. That James, the original James, was, as you know, one of the sons of Zebedee. He was the elder brother of the apostle John, and uh, together they were the Boanerges brothers. You know, that was Jesus' nickname for them, according to Mark 3, 17. He called them Boanerges. In fact, that verse speaks of them this way. It says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder. That's what that meant, sons of thunder. And they were thunderous lads, and you see exactly what that nickname meant in Luke chapter 9, where you have a quick succession of three incidents that show a side of these two great apostles that we know they ultimately outgrew, but they made lots of mistakes, just like Peter did and the other apostles. Uh, first, in Luke 9:46, they were having an argument about which of the disciples was the greatest. That was followed immediately in verse 49 by a scene where John admits to Jesus that they saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name and they tried to stop him because he wasn't part of the group. And then just a few verses later, verse 54, James and John, the Boanerges brothers, wanted to call down fire from heaven, literally, to destroy an entire Samaritan village when the people in that village did not receive Jesus, Scripture says. Uh, they didn't receive him the Bible says, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And uh, so the Samaritans wanted to forbid him to pass through. And uh, so James and John said, maybe it would be a good idea to do what Elijah would have done and call down fire. Uh, but they overcame that unsanctified attitude. And in fact, James and John were two of the four apostles who had been in Jesus' closest inner circle. They both knew Christ well. John, being the last of the 12 apostles to die, probably in his 90s. But James, his brother, the original James, was the first of the 12 to be martyred, probably at least a decade or so before this epistle was even written. Acts 12, verse 2, Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. 
And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So the author of this epistle is a different James. And he's an interesting character because this James is the son of Joseph and Mary, and therefore he's the half-brother of Christ. Paul refers to him in Galatians 1.19 as James the Lord's brother. Uh, The Apostle Paul also recognizes this James as having authority equal to that of the apostles. He wasn't one of the twelve, of course, but he became the principal leader in the Jerusalem church, which is intriguing because during the earthly ministry of Christ, James and his other brothers, the half-brothers of Jesus, were all unbelievers. Contrary to the Roman Catholic Church's notion of the perpetual virginity of Mary, Joseph and Mary had at least four sons after Jesus was born. So Jesus had four half-brothers. According to Matthew 13, 55, we even know the names of all four of them. When Jesus was rejected by the people of his hometown, The people said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So you have all four names. And notice, James is the one named first, so he must have been the second eldest son in the family, Jesus being the the first, the oldest. James was the second oldest. And then all of Jesus, James and all of Jesus' other younger brothers remained unbelievers until after the resurrection. And as Jesus' crucifixion drew near and the Jewish leaders already seeking to kill him, John chapter 7 verse 5 says, at that point not even his brothers believed in him. But immediately after the resurrection, Acts chapter 1 where Luke describes what the disciples were doing leading up to Pentecost. He says they gathered in the upper room, Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they became converted probably when they met the resurrected Christ. And by the way, the last of those four brothers, as I read it, is called Judas in the Gospels, That's Jude, who wrote the brief epistle in the New Testament that bears his name. So James and Jude, the author of the the book of Jude, and James, the author of our text, were brothers to each other, and they were half-brothers of Jesus. And James writes with impressive sobriety and maturity and authority. He's clearly a serious-minded man of wisdom and discretion. Some people would refer to the book of James as the wisdom literature of the New Testament. So uh, perhaps it's no big surprise that James very quickly became a leader in the early church. He was apparently the senior pastor, became the senior pastor, the lead elder in the church at Jerusalem because in the book of Galatians, Paul suggests that the, the false teachers who he had to contend with in Galatia had originally come there claiming to be representatives of the church in Jerusalem. And they may have indeed had some connection to the Jerusalem church because in Galatians 2.12, Paul calls them men from James. But they weren't good representatives of James or the doctrine he taught because in Acts 15, where where they mediate some of these discrepancies over doctrine, James is the one 
who delivers the verdict at the first ever church council when the question arises regarding whether Gentile converts need to be circumcised or not. Of course, that's what these men who claim to be his representatives were saying. You can't become a Christian unless you're circumcised. And James stands up in Acts 15 and says, no, that's not the case. And by the way, at the close of that church council in Acts 15, it says that James wrote a letter to the Gentile believers under Paul's ministry in the Galatian region, and he sent, it, sent that letter. And the letter that he writes in Acts 15 starts with the very same kind of greeting as this epistle. Acts 15.23, he wrote, To the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Now notice that single word salutation, greetings. It's the same way the epistle of James begins. And the last word in verse 1 is that same one word opening. And it sets the tone for the epistle. James is a man who doesn't waste words. He tells us why that is in several ways. For one thing, he knows, James 3, 6, that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. In verse 8, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And furthermore, James 3, verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. So James purposely does not multiply words unnecessarily, and, uh, and you see the evidence of that in the way this text is written. Now look at our text, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and notice this is a letter to, the, to Jewish believers, and like that letter to the Gentiles in Acts 15, this one was sent far beyond the boundaries of Judea and Samaria, uh, it's addressed to Jews living in the outlying regions of the Roman Empire. He addresses the epistle, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. And he also addresses them in verse 2 as brothers. But he is speaking to them not merely as his Jewish brethren. These are fellow believers, and therefore they are his brothers in Christ. So when he addresses them as brethren... He's underscoring the fact that they are people who have professed faith in Christ and he regards them as his brothers in Christ. You know that with certainty because chapter 2 begins with this exhortation, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So he is writing this epistle to fellow believers and that means that the truth we are about to delve into is written for Christians in particular. And I want you to bear that in mind because what follows, and I will come back to this at the end, but what follows here is a, a promise for believers. If you are not a believer in Christ, if you are not someone who has confessed your guilt as a sinner and turned away from the love of sin to follow Christ as Lord, this passage actually has different ramifications for you, and we'll come back to that before we close, Lord willing. But if you are a Christian, the promises James is about to expound on in this passage are meant for you and addressed to you. So here's the text, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and he uses a word that means patience and endurance, all of those things. And let 
steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I love that passage not only because it offers help and encouragement when we are assaulted by the troubles of this life, but I love it especially because it shows so vividly and in such practical terms how radically different the Christian worldview is from every other religion or philosophy or political point of view. You know, when I read a text like this, it reinforces my conviction that the Bible is the inspired Word of God because no mere mortal man would ever write something like this. No mere man-made religion would ever depict trials as a motive for joy and patience and ultimate perfection. Think of it, no, there is no principle of human reason even that would ever lead us to think of trouble or affliction as an instrument of sanctification or a channel of grace whereby God blesses his people. That is totally counterintuitive. It's a classic example where, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. On its face, viewed with human reason alone, this passage looks foolish, unreasonable, but it's the wisdom of God. And you wouldn't find it anywhere else. Now, there are, of course, religions that impute some kind of pious merit to suffering, uh, you know, as if we could atone for our own sins by suffering. And even some who claim to be followers of Christ have twisted the truth out of shape just like that. In fact, I'm sorry to say this, but that is precisely the way Mother Teresa looked at suffering. She would always speak of suffering as, as the means by which poor people, even unbelievers, could mystically enter into the passion of Christ. That's how she described it. In other words, she taught that suffering is an instrument or, or a means of self-atonement. Of course, Roman Catholics don't believe that anyone is justified before God by faith alone. That's the main difference between Catholic theology and Protestant theology. Catholic Church denies that faith alone can justify you, but Mother Teresa believed in justification by suffering alone. And her work was based on the notion that even the sufferings of people who lack faith their sufferings have redemptive value for them. She literally believed that human suffering can supplement or even supplant the death of Christ in making an atonement for sin. And that is no small theological error. It, it is actually a sinister doctrine. Mother Teresa didn't look all that sinister, but her doctrine was, and that doctrine has borne a mountain of rotten fruit. If you have the the idea that Mother Teresa was a devout lover of Christ and an example to be emulated, I need to burst that bubble because she is a classic icon of utterly false religion. She was a typical false teacher, sort of, as Scripture says, secretly bringing in destructive heresies, but disguised as an angel of light. People who thought she was a saint would donate multiple millions to her work. I visited her place in Calcutta once met her in person, and you would think that if you saw the place that she and the Sisters of Mercy were destitute of any resources, there were rows of afflicted people laid out on 
cold, wet concrete just waiting to die. And I don't know who was doing the counting, but there are statistics that show that by the year 2010, more than 35,000 people had died in that facility. The Sisters of Charity operate several facilities like that around the world. And so that really represents only a fraction of the people who have died while they were in their care being told that their suffering would gain them heaven. And an investigation of the organization's finances in 1991 revealed that only 7% of all the millions that were donated that year had actually been used for charitable work to help alleviate the suffering of those destitute and dying people. And all of this stemmed deliberately from Mother Teresa's belief that suffering has some kind of mystical or meritorious power. She would idealize and romanticize the suffering of other people even when she could have done more to relieve their suffering. I want to make clear that is not what James is calling for here. He's not saying that our suffering has any kind of mystical or meritorious redemptive power. And, and there's another vital point to, be, to bear in mind here. This, is not, uh, this passage is not about how we should view the sufferings of other people. It's not how we should look at afflictions when other people are suffering. It's about how we should respond when we ourselves are beset by some kind of trouble. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Because when others suffer, we are, we are commanded to help bear their burden and ease their pain. That's one of the clear implications of Jesus' teaching about the parable of the Good Samaritan. When others suffer, we have a duty to help and to help bear the burden. When we ourselves suffer, James says, we should count it as joy. And that is clean contrary to human instincts. When, when we are the ones suffering, it's our natural tendency, most of us, to, to do the exact opposite of what James is telling us we ought to do. We scorn the tribulations and we resent the hardships of human life. We become angry or sullen when we are the ones being afflicted. And I include myself in that. I, that's my natural tendency. You know what that is. Or, or just as bad... Some people conclude that the troubles of this life are divine punishments, that something they've done to deserve this. And that, you know, is woven into the subtext of the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job, you know, was put to the test, and he suffered unspeakable anguish and loss. The violent theft or destruction of all of his earthly possessions, the unexpected unex uh, death of all of his children and ultimately the complete ruin of his own physical health. All of that fell on him in a very short time, and he struggled naturally with self-pity and resentment and bitterness against God, and he ultimately descended into the deepest pit of human despair, deprived of every comfort and surrounded even by sanctimonious friends whose counsel to him was preachy and accusatory. You know, Job's counselors were certain that his sufferings could only be explained by some secret sin that Job had committed. They saw his suffering as some kind of proof that he was not truly a righteous man. It was evidence that he had done something to incur the angry displeasure of God. But the biblical verdict on Job is clear from the very beginning of the story. 
where God himself says this about Job. Job 1, verse 8, There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. It was not Job's fault that he was suffering. His sufferings were a test, not a penalty. And in the end, the experience strengthened him. It didn't defeat him. His sufferings turned out to be a blessing after all, even though it felt like a curse. And all of those same lessons are packed into these three verses at the start of the epistle of James. And those are the points I want to consider with you as we work our way through this text. I'm going to point out three surprising lessons that this passage teaches us about the afflictions we suffer. Number one, trouble is a blessing, not a curse. Number two, tribulation comes to test us, not to penalize us. And number three, our trials will ultimately perfect us, not defeat us. And I'll give you those again if you wanted to write them down. We'll look at them in order. First, number one, if you're writing them down, trouble is a blessing, not a curse. Verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet with various trials. That's the ESV, and it it correctly translates this expression, trials of various kinds. The King James Version says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, temptations. And of course, we tend to think of a temptation as a, a, an enticement to evil. But the focus here is clearly on trials of adversity, not temptations to sin. And I want to stress that because the Greek word for trials is a word that can actually mean either trials or temptations. It's just one word in the Greek that means both things. So we have to let context determine the meaning in a passage like this, or 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that uh, is not common to man. Uses the same word, temptation, trials. There's just no way to differentiate between them in biblical language just by looking at the Greek word. It's the same word, whether it's talking about temptations or trials, and uh, you, you, just, you just have to let the context tell you what it is that the writer has in mind. So let's just look at this. Is verse 2 of our text speaking of trials that we go through like Job did? Or is it talking about temptations to sin like when the devil confronted Jesus in the wilderness after Christ had spent four days, 40 days fasting? Again, the word in the original Greek text is the same, whether it means trials or temptations. In fact, the Greek term is pyrasmos, and it means to test by experiment. That's the meaning of it. Or it can be used to mean simply an attempt, basically a trial meant to prove whether something is good. It can also refer to a trap meant to expose whether something is evil. And the English word temptation used to be an exact synonym for that Greek word pyrasmos, and it, that's it's why it's that way in the King James Version. It's used that way. They used to use it that way. So temptation in, the, in James 1, 2, in the King James, it says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The King James translators knew that this passage was talking about trials. It's just that the word temptation had that meaning in the, in the 1600s. But in modern English, we usually make a clear distinction 
And it's a meaningful one between a temptation, which is a solicitation to evil that comes from either the world or the flesh or the devil, and that's different from a trial, like an affliction or a hardship, that we haven't done anything to deserve. And those, those are two totally different things, right? It's obvious. But there's also more crossover between those two things than you might normally imagine. Think about this. When Job, when Satan afflicted Job trying to get him to curse God, was that a solicitation to evil or was it a trial of his faith? And the answer is it was both. It was both. And all of our trials are like that. Every time divine providence puts us to the test, the powers of darkness will use that as a test, will will use that test from God as a temptation to do evil. And in Job's case, the devil was trying to provoke Job to curse God. And at one point, even Job's wife seemed to think that that would be a good and easy way out of his suffering. And by the way, don't be too hard on her. We have all fallen into that trap under less burdensome trouble than, than Job was facing here. But let me be clear. There is a legitimate distinction to be made between trials that God subjects us to and the temptations the devil throws at us. But some of the temptations we face are nothing more than, you know, they're just nothing more than allurements to sin. Uh, a link, you know, will pop up in the search engine and advertise some lust-inducing website. That is a test of your sanctification. But as a solicitation to evil, you have to understand that did not come from God. It's nothing but bait for a snare that the devil has set for you. First Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. And Ephesians 4, 7 says, give no opportunity to the devil. So you don't welcome a solicitation to evil. You refuse it. You oppose it. Uh, James 4, verse 7 even says this, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So we are not to welcome temptations uh, or meet them with joy. That's not what he's saying here in this verse. The kind of trial James has in mind here. And by the way, he will clearly distinguish between the two kinds of trials before he even ends this chapter. Down in verse 13, you have the cognitive verb, pyrazo. It's the same root as pyrasmos, but this time he uses it as a verb, not a noun. But it's the same idea, and it can either mean to test or to tempt, or both. And again, the word itself doesn't make the distinction, but this passage shows what a simple matter it is to simply look at the context so that you know which idea is in view. So, because there in verse 13, it is crystal clear, is it not, that James is talking down in verse 13 about a temptation to evil, a solicitation to to sin. The context makes the meaning inescapable. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted, notice, with evil, and he himself tempts no one, understood, with evil. He does put us to the test. He does not try to entice us with evil. That's the devil's work. So verse 13 is speaking of a direct appeal to our fallen nature, an enticement to sin. We rightfully label that as a temptation. 
So keep the broader context in mind here. By the time you get to the end of verse 12, James has already talked about the benefits of trials that put our faith to the test. Then starting in verse 13, he wants to make it clear that God is never the one who tempts us to do evil. God may allow Satan to sift us like wheat, and in the process, the devil will try to lure us into sin, but God's purposes are always good, and his tests are designed for our benefit. God's tests are never designed to be bait that lures us to sin, and that's the lesson here. When you face an enticement to do evil, you know with a certainty that that's from the devil, so resist it. But when you are subjected to trouble or affliction, persecution, suffering for righteousness' sake, welcome that trial as a blessing. Because it is a blessing, it's not a curse. And in our passage, James is simply echoing something that he heard Christ teach. Think about this. This is the same as the last of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And James is saying the very same thing, just in fewer words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So I hope we're clear. Temptations to evil are not what James is talking about here in verses 2 through 4. Just remember that he's writing, verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's writing to Jewish believers, in other words. Many of them had been forced into exile by persecution. And even though the church was still very young at this point, the Persecution was already fierce enough to drive people into exile. Remember, James, the, the member of the Twelve, had died for his faith. So we know that the persecution was heavy from the New Testament itself. And in fact, the first major church-wide persecution was unleashed with the stoning of Stephen, Acts 8, verse 1. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then it was after that that Herod killed James, the son of Zebedee. And Acts 12 tells us that when Herod saw that please the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So these, these trials that these exiled Jewish believers were facing started with persecution that Jewish leaders and Roman officials had aimed at them because of their faith. They were suffering for righteousness' sake. Many of them had already lost all of their possessions. They were being falsely accused. They were being hauled into court. They were being taken advantage of by unsympathetic people. So they were suffering unbelievable adversity for righteousness' sake. And the most severe trials had come on them suddenly and unexpectedly. Trouble had hit them with such a force and such a severity that from a human perspective, it seemed inappropriate for the people of God to be suffering that way. And it raised the same questions that the prophet Jeremiah asked in Jeremiah 12, verse 1, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Why do believing people suffer while unbelievers enjoy good fortune and abundance? 
Notice uh, the verse, version I'm reading, the English Standard Version, speaks of meeting trials of various kinds. It uses that verb meeting. The King James says when you fall into diverse temptations. James is actually using a Greek word, peripipto, that literally means to fall among. And in fact, this is interesting, it's the very same word used in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, verse 30, where it says he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him dead. So it's very picturesque language, and it perfectly describes, doesn't it, what, what it feels like when a marauding band of harsh and persistent trials seems to catch us off guard. The word James uses conveys the idea of an assault that is unanticipated and fierce and viciously hurtful and relentless. That is what these exiled believers were suffering. It's the most intense kind of trial, very much like the sufferings of Job. And the context makes it clear that that is what James has in mind. These afflictions were, verse 3, for the testing of their faith. Pyrasmas, trials, in this case speaks of those external afflictions designed to put their faith to the test. And when that happens, he says, count it all joy, my brothers. That is the proper Christian response to trials. Rejoice and be glad. Uh, incidentally, there's a note of joy in verse 1 in that single word greeting that James uses. Look back again at that last word of verse 1. It's translated greetings in every major English translation. The King James Version uses the singular form, greeting. And the older Geneva Bible says salutation. It just sounds too formal. The Greek word there is kairain. And it's the absolute infinitive of a verb that means to rejoice. It's the cognitive verb of the noun in verse 2 that's translated joy. Those two words come from the same root. They share a common root. Kyrene. Apparently this was a standard greeting in James's letters. It, because you remember when he wrote to the, the Gentile believers in Acts 15, he greeted them with his same single word salutation, kyrene. It's like saying... I wish you joy. In fact, the exact English equivalent would be to greet someone with cheers. But imagine if you were suffering the loss of everything you held dear, your home, your livelihood, your possessions, so you're separated from family. That is not the kind of greeting the typical person who's suffering wants to hear, right? A greeting like cheers might come across as calloused or inappropriate, but James uses it intentionally, I think, as a quick transition into the first thing he wants to encourage them with. He says, I wish you joy, and you can be joyful, even though you've met with all these trials. He's giving them a deliberate paradox. Essentially, he's saying, I wish you joy. In fact, you should count it all joy Whenever anything happens that threatens your joy, take joy in those things that threaten to take your joy away. Now, still, if you're in a trial that's so severe that you've literally lost everything, you've been forced into exile, a letter telling you to be joyful doesn't seem likely to encourage you very much unless you are thoroughly grounded in the faith. And as James is about to 
demonstrate here real Christian joy rests on a foundation of sound doctrine, truth about God and truth about his saving work on our behalf. That's where the joy stems from, as we saw last night. And it should be obvious that one of the underlying theological propositions here is the sovereignty of God. James is reminding them, subtly, but reminding them that nothing happens to us by chance. God is in control even when it seems like a whole world is out of control. And if that were not true, nothing James says here could possibly be true. So we know from this passage alone that James is a thoroughgoing Calvinist. He believes strongly in the sovereignty of God. He makes a major issue of it in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, where, you know, remember he rebukes people for not acknowledging that God is sovereign. He writes, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? It's just a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And he says, instead, you ought to say this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So he's saying as plainly as possible there, it's actually evil not to recognize God's sovereign providence. It's evil. God is in control of everything. And the clear implication is this. It is likewise true, if God is in control of everything, that no trouble could ever befall you if the Lord didn't permit it. You also ought to say, he says, if the Lord wills, we'll be faced with this or that trial. And since God is good and gracious and his mercy is over all that he has made, and because for those who love God, all things work together for good, even the trouble, the trouble we fall into, therefore, is a blessing, not a curse. Because suffering actually works for us, not against us. Psalm 126, verse 6, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. And that's true for trials of every kind, diverse trials, as he says in the King James. In fact, he uses an expression that highlights the countless varieties of trials. It's trials of various kinds, or various trials. And the idea here is every kind of trial, literally trials of any sort. James is making a poetic play on words here, and it doesn't come across as clearly in English as it would if you, if you read the Greek. But first he says, count it all joy. And the Greek expression for all joy literally means every kind of joy. And then he speaks of all kinds of trials. So the idea is that every kind of joy is attainable and appropriate in every kind of trial. In fact, Spurgeon's sermon on this text was titled, All Joy in All Trials. Now, apart from the grace of God and the sovereignty of God, none of this is possible. Remember the lesson of Paul's thorn in the flesh? That God gives us grace that is sufficient for whatever trials he allows us to suffer. And James 4 verse 6 says he gives more grace. God's grace comes to us in waves right along with the trials. With every trial comes an extra wave of divine grace. 
And grace is, among other things, an antidote for sorrow. The, the only kind of sorrow divine grace ever causes is that godly sorrow that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Other than that, grace wipes away our sorrow. And even in that, the sorrow of repentance actually opens the door for eternal joy. And meanwhile, for those who have repented, joy, even in this troubled life, joy is our spiritual birthright. So Scripture tells us, rejoice in the Lord. Always rejoice in the Lord at all times. And then he says, again, I will say, rejoice. And this also means that for a believer, every kind of trial is a blessing, not a curse. So what about when the trouble is a consequence of your own disobedience? What about when you bring trouble on yourself? What if you did do something to provoke or deserve whatever suffering you're now struggling with? Truthfully, if you are a believer in Christ, even that kind of trial is a reason for joy because it's proof of God's love for you. Hebrews 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. And for the moment, he says, all pain, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, he says, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And James is making a similar point in our passage. The fruit of our trials will ultimately make all those trials worthwhile. Now, if you're not a Christian, and, and even more specifically, if you're not a well-taught Christian with settled faith in the absolute sovereignty of God, there's no way any of this could ever bring you any kind of encouragement, not the kind of encouragement James intends anyway, because if you don't understand that every believer is called according to God's purpose, if you don't see yourself that way, then there's no way you could rest in the unshakable confidence that God has called you to a purpose that is good, a purpose that can never be thwarted, a purpose that he himself is going to see to fruition. We sang about it this morning. He will hold you fast. And if you don't understand that and embrace it wholeheartedly, you won't be able to have all kinds of joy and all kinds of trials. And I stress this all the time. If you listen to me to preach, if you listen to me preach very often, you'll hear it come up in almost every sermon. And that's deliberate. Our sovereign God always has a purpose that is good. And in fact, that word purpose has been so corrupted in our generation that I need to stop and point out what it's talking about. Because you hear it nowadays, and you might be thinking, you, you might be tempted to think of the purpose-driven life or the purpose-driven church. Because the idea in those books is that you have a, uh, a unique individual purpose in life and your church should also have a singular purpose that's usually inspired by some person's private vision. And you need to find out what your personalized purpose is and fulfill it or find out your pastor's vision and, in order to see your church's purpose and it's your duty to work to fulfill that purpose. But that is not at all what the word purpose, as it's used in Scripture, means, and particularly in Romans 8.28, where it refers to God's purpose regarding what he himself will do. We are called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? 
It is specifically identified in the very next verse, Romans 8, 29, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He is conforming us to Christ-likeness, perfect Christ-likeness. And here's the thing. The trials that we meet with along the way are the instruments by which he accomplishes that purpose. If you want to be like Christ, you can't do it and not learn how to handle suffering because he suffered. According to Hebrews 5.8, Jesus himself, although he was a son, learned obedience through what he suffered. And that, of course, is talking about how he matured as a man, as a human. But the pattern is the same for us. We grow through our suffering. And that's one of the major reasons we should think of trials as a blessing, not a curse. God is shaping us according to his purpose. So that's lesson number one. Trouble is a blessing, not a curse. Here's a second lesson. Number two, if you want to take this down, it's a little longer. Tribulation comes to test us, not merely to penalize us. Tribulation comes to test us, not merely to penalize us. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that phrase, the testing of your faith, is synonymous with the word trials in verse 2. James is reminding us about a truth that is woven throughout Scripture, namely that suffering is how the genuineness of our faith is put to the test. God is glorified when we endure it patiently. That is the lesson of Job. That's the whole truth behind the suffering of Job. It's also how Peter looked at suffering. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. Now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But in addition to glorifying God, these tests of our faith actually benefit us greatly. James says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when steadfastness has its full effect, that's when we reach spiritual maturity, perfect Christ-likeness. More on that shortly. But before we move on to that part of our text, listen how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. By the way, that little snippet from Romans 5 is an exact parallel to our text here. So Paul and James are in perfect agreement here. Paul says it like this, Romans 5, verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What that's saying is that every virtue, every quality of godly character is ultimately strengthened by suffering. And furthermore, and this is vital, the sufferings we face, even when God is disciplining us for something we've done wrong, the suffering is not fundamentally a penalty or a punishment. God's discipline isn't for punitive purposes only. It's a test and a teaching exercise that will strengthen us and perfect us Hebrews 12 again, verses 10 and 11. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So 
what he's saying is when God disciplines us, even when our suffering is the result of our sin, God uses that to train and teach and toughen us, not merely doling out payback for our transgressions. He's bringing us to maturity. And troubles, therefore, are tests of our faith, not primarily reproofs for our failings. And when God tests the faith of a believer, the point is not to subject us to an experiment so that God can find out what we'll do. That's not the idea of the test here. He knows what we'll do. He promises to keep us from falling. We might stumble or fail temporarily, but God will not permit us to be plucked out of his hand. He will hold us fast. He's not trying to get us to fail so that we'll tap out if we're not strong enough. But what God is doing, both to the devil and to us, is proving that our faith is genuine. So the devil can see it and so that we know it. And therefore, we know that our faith is lasting and God is able to make us stand. Our strength and our willpower might fail. Peter's did. We'll get to that in a minute. But just like Peter, our faith will not fail. And God's strength will never fail. And his will can never be thwarted. And in fact, before Peter failed, Jesus explained to Peter exactly how all of this works. Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now to Peter, that must have come across a little bit mysterious. What is this? You know, Satan asked you to sift me like wheat. I hope you told him no. But Jesus says, no, I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you've turned again, strengthening your brothers implies you are going to fail, but you'll come back. Notice the truths that emerge from those words of Jesus. Satan is doing his best to destroy Peter. The devil would throw every weapon in his arsenal at Peter, and it would push Peter past the breaking point. And Peter did deny Christ three times with curses and swearing, and his self-confidence and his own strength failed the test and failed in the most miserable and public and humiliating way. But even though Peter's courage and his self-confidence were shattered and his testimony was temporarily ruined, Christ's prayer for Peter was answered. His faith didn't fail, and Christ knew ahead of time what would be the outcome because he told Peter exactly what his ministry was going to be when he was restored. Restrengthen your brothers, Jesus said. How, how could someone who showed that kind of weakness strengthen other people? Here's how. Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Peter's experience is what equipped him in a special way to prepare and encourage us when we meet with trials. Remember that like James, Peter actually wrote an epistle to these same Jewish people in exile, and he gave them exactly the same counsel that James gives here. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 10. I read verse 8 earlier, but now listen to verses 8 through 10. This time, bearing in mind what a severe trial Peter himself had gone through, he tells them, be sober-minded, be watchful, 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Peter is promising them that they would have the same experience he did. God, at the end of the trial, would establish and restore and strengthen him. He's writing from personal experience, someone who for a time felt like he had been absolutely ruined by the trial and and shown to be a total failure. When Peter says at the end of the book of John, I'm going back to fishing, he didn't mean I'm going to go fishing this weekend. He meant that was all that was left for him by way of a career. And Christ let him live with his failure for a while before he restored him. But it wasn't a punishment for Peter. It was an experience that strengthened him so that he, in turn, could strengthen the brethren. And that's lesson number three from our passage. First, trouble is a blessing, not a curse. Second, tribulation comes to test us, not merely to penalize us. Now, third, trials will ultimately perfect us, not defeat us. Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials sometimes reveal our imperfections, but that's not the conclusion of the matter. Because even when we fail, he gives more grace. We grow spiritually. Peter grew in humility and in patience and determination and dependence on the Lord. His self-confidence was shattered. And that's a good thing. He had some subsequent failures, but he was never again tempted to deny Christ. And in fact, he died for him. The same thing happens when we are tried. It always strengthens us so that even our failures can build steadfastness. And that, in turn, nurtures other spiritual virtues. That's what happened in Peter's experience. And that's what James is describing here. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. This is yet another reminder that God has a purpose in our trials, and it's a good purpose. Suffering and difficulties don't come to us randomly or arbitrarily. They always have a good reason, and they always serve a good purpose. And furthermore, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And if you know what kind of trials Paul suffered, you understand that for him to say it's a light momentary affliction, he's not minimizing the severity of some of the earthly trials we go through. He went through worse trials than all of us. He says he suffered worse than anyone else. But he also said, Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's not a statement designed to minimize earthly trials. That statement is designed to magnify heavenly glory. And we need to think it like that. Think of it like that. Let me read it again. Matthew or sorry, Romans 8:18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Some versions of that say the glory that is to be revealed in us. Literally, it says 
the glory that will be revealed toward us, which means the fullness of God's glory will be revealed to us and it will be reflected by us in the same way that Moses' face shone, except that in our case, in that eternal state, the glory will be revealed to us and reflected by us and it will never diminish. This is talking about that indescribable glory that will fill all of heaven, so radiant that Revelation 21:23 says, the heavenly city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Suffering is merely a prelude to that glory, eternal glory. Temporary suffering eternal glory. And I'm convinced that when Paul spoke of the glory that is to be revealed in us, he had in mind that state of perfect Christ-likeness that God intends to bring to reality in each one of us. Our trials are the instruments of his work. And though you may not sense it now, in the end, because of the trials you experience in this life, you will eventually be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, our trials are designed to fit us for heaven, where there won't be any trials. Our trials are temporary. Our salvation is not. And in the end, the trials will strengthen us, not defeat us. So look at the text one last time, and let's get a bird's eye view of it. Three verses, each make a distinctive point. Verse 2 shows us the proper response to our trials. Count it all joy. Verse 3 gives us the providential reason for our trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 4 anticipates the perfect result of our trials and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect. So these are the lessons. Trouble is a blessing, not a curse. Tribulation comes to test us, not merely to penalize us. And trials will ultimately perfect us, not defeat us. So this passage teaches us to embrace trials as friends and allies because we're just pilgrims in this world. We're on a journey to heaven and the trials that we meet along the way are comparable to the security check at the airport, you know? They're annoying. They're invasive. They are often rude. They can make you feel abused and it always feels like they're slowing you down and nobody likes them. But they serve a purpose that's good. They help ensure that you will arrive safely and intact at your destination. And if you encounter enough of them, you will learn patience. I haven't learned it yet, but I'm working on it. We are on our way to heaven where we will have an eternity of perfect bliss in the holiness of paradise and the presence of Christ so that all of our afflictions are comparatively meager. They're always temporary and they fit us for heaven. They're managed by God himself for, the purpose, uh, for purposes that are entirely good, for our good and for his glory. And that is the only foundation for true and lasting joy, even in the midst of trials. Now, once more, one more thing. If you are not a believer, none of this applies to you. If you persist in unbelief and unrepentant sin, the trials of this life will someday seem like good times 
compared to eternity under the wrath of God. But Scripture says you can escape the wrath of God simply by turning to Christ in faith. Confess your sin, acknowledge your need of God's grace, and Scripture makes this promise that does apply to you. Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And just a few verses later, Romans 10, 13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for impatient, wavering hearts. We know that trials are necessary, and the trials themselves are no reason for joy, but as believers, we have ample reason for joy in spite of those trials. May our hopes and our hearts and our minds be fixed firmly on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And may Christ himself be the very center of our thoughts and affections and as you can conform us to his perfect likeness, even through the trials that we meet along the way. Help us to bear them in a way that glorifies Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.